to the perks of being a book lover a show featuring two completely opposite longtime friends i'm carrie and i bring the practical busco vibe to this partnership and i'm amy i tend to be upbeat and social and i will admit i've been saying this opening for a whole season now i am overly enthusiastic i will admit it completely Each week we have book nerd conversations with each other and sometimes a special guest. We not only talk about what we're reading, but also book adjacent topics such as stuff we've had to Google while reading, new titles on our TBR lists, film adaptations that we've seen, and other bookish news. At the end of our shows, you'll find new books to put on your nightstand and a laugh or two along the way. Jessica Brody is the author of the well-known writing book, Save the Cat Writes a Novel, and teaches classes on this writing method. But she's also published over 20 books for all ages, including middle grade. Her most recent, titled Amelia Gray is Almost Okay, came out in March of this year. Amelia is a kid who moves around a lot due to her father's job as a hotel renovator and reimaginer. Like a lot of middle schoolers, she's trying to figure out who she is and what she's good at. And during one memorable summer in a new town, she decides to try on different personas to see which one fits best. Is she an athlete, a theater kid, or a reporter? What I loved about this book is that I could relate to it even though I'm a 50-year-old adult. I still try different versions of myself sometimes, so I can relate to Amelia. Jessica talks to us about what words in the English language really get under her skin, how being fired from MGM Studios gave her the writing opportunity she needed, and her overwhelming passion for spreadsheets. But first... You and I both had a weekend full of graduations, graduation parties. Yep. Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, all weekend. (laughs) You know, only one of my kids had a great graduation party. The other two weren't really that interested. And part of me was kind of thankful for that. But the reason they weren't interested is because they didn't want to have to schmooze with people. Oh, yeah. And (laughs) the one graduation party I went to, I did know people. It was a family member. It's my niece. And so, you know, I knew a lot of people there. And so it wasn't too hard. But it's sometimes painful when you go to one where you don't really know anybody else. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So how did you fare? The one yesterday was my nephew. So my parents were there. I had some, my brother obviously was there. The one uh, student I went to their graduation, I taught both her and her brother, for many years. I think seven years each. Well, and my other thing is, I always struggle to know, well, now I don't. I Now I just pretty much give them a check for money. But I remember when my oldest was graduating and, you know, when I was going to graduation parties for his friends, I was trying to come up with, like, fun things, you know, to give them, like, one young woman, I had gotten these really nice towels and I had her initials monogrammed on them because oh, wow. I thought, oh, well, you know, when she does her laundry, no one will be able to steal her towel because it has her, her monogrammed letters on it. And then for another friend, I got him a wallet and I put a bunch of gift cards to different eateries that were around campus in it, you know, well, so he could not, use that. Those are good gifts. Those are, but what they really want is money. Oh, another idea that I had seen was like you could give them like a huge jar with rolls of quarters in it for their laundry. But the thing is, a lot of colleges now, you don't 
put money in the right. laundry machines. Right. It's like all by like a swipe card. Anyway, now I just give a check. Uh, <laughs> Cause, well, cause they want, what they really want is that, I think. Right. <laughs> right. Now, what I do, I do get, especially for girls, but sometimes I do it for boys too, especially if they're going away to school. There's this Polish pottery place that's actually more on your side of town. I mean, it's just beautiful pottery. And I get them a mug. You know, these are not like Target $10 mugs. These are, you know, a little bit pricier. They're mugs. hand painted. They're hand painted. Yeah. They're, they're beautiful. And so I tend to get those and I put a little note. Some of them are probably starting to drink coffee if they haven't already been. I'm like, so this is for, you know, tea or coffee when you're having a late night studying. Don't use it for alcoholic beverages. You know, so I put a little <laughs> note in there. Um, ha ha. But, but it's kind of become like a tradition, you know, that that's what I give. But it sort of depends on how long I've known them. You know, if it's a student that I've only known a year, then I might just give them something smaller than that. But if it's a student that I've had for a long time, then, then I get them one of those. those yeah. So. Well, I love that idea. And I might steal it because, you know, I hate to just give money. So I like the idea of getting them a little something else. But I also have this passion for pottery, like yeah. handmade pottery. And I kind of collect it like I'm, I'm sort of a an orphaned pottery collector because like when I go to, you know, yard sales or different things, you know, a lot of people are selling these handmade pieces that mm -hmm. a, a family member made or you know, they bought it an art show and now they don't want it. And I, and I like buy all those things because I hate to see handmade things go like mm -hmm. that. So I have this little collection of pottery, nice pieces of pottery that I hold on to. I've got several mugs in there. I could give her well, one there you go. Mugs. Yeah. Well, you know what I tried out for the first time this weekend? What? Pickleball. Do you know what pickleball is? Yeah, I have a hard time picturing you playing pickleball. <laughs> <laughs> my husband dare was this a drunken dare no not well, I wouldn't call it a dare but my husband has been playing pickleball with three friends they get together on Saturday mornings and play double pickleball when I say they play I mean I mean that in the loosest possible way because apparently <laughs> they're not very good <laughs> but one of them had a pickleball set and he let us keep it because we are the ones who live in the neighborhood that has tennis courts that also have pickleball lines on them. And so Chris kept the pickleball set and he's been trying to get me to go out there and hit the ball with him. So I finally decided, okay, fine. Because it was really beautiful weather last night. It was, it was like the perfect temperature. So I went out there and played and it was a lot of fun. I mean, no, we weren't really playing, playing. We were really just hitting the ball back and forth. But mm -hmm. what makes it different is that you're closer in mm -hmm. and the ball is not like a regular tennis ball. It's like a wiffle ball. Uh -huh. So it bounces different, but we had a good, we had a fun time and I thought, Oh, well, I could probably do this. You know, it used to be, I wouldn't want to do it because I would think I'm not going to be able to hit that ball. My hand eye coordination is not awesome. Like it hasn't been since I was a kid, which is why I was never good at sports is because you know, like softball or tennis or anything. Like I sometimes have trouble hitting the ball, but I did all right. But what I will say is, oh my God, I am so sore this morning. I had to take <laughs> I was going to say, so my neighbor just retired not too long ago. And he was like, I'm going to go play pickleball. And he ended up in a boot. 
and somebody I know who plays tennis, actually a couple people I know who play tennis have said, because pickleball, you know, it, it's sort of sold as anybody can play it, you know, it's good for any age. And so you have people going out and they're like, yeah, but they haven't prepared their bodies for it. Yes. They just think they can go out and can play it. And then they end up <laughs> injured. <laughs> So, you know, my husband's been playing with these three other three other guys and one of them, uh, the second time that they played, within three minutes, he had pulled a muscle like a groin muscle by lunging for the ball and he hadn't stretched out or anything. And so then they couldn't play anymore. Mm, Yeah. (laughs) He's the same age as us. He's about, you know, he's about 50, maybe Mm -hmm. 51. And, you know, you think of it as being a sport for older people and by older i guess i mean any older than us but you know you have to stretch you can still get injured right right i think that i even pulled a muscle last night by yawning too hard (laughs) have you ever had that like in your in like your jaw yawn too hard and not yet but i am a year younger than you so i know just wait just wait wait. yeah (laughs) just you wait youngin you see what old age is going to be like. All right. It, this is definitely not a sport that I think that I am. It, it's I, I had fun, but, you know, I don't think I'm going to be on any kind of professional pickleball team or pickleball league. It's just hitting the ball around, you know. And so, you know, I'm just doing it for fun. I don't have to excel at it. And we talk about that with uh, with Jessica in our interview this week. Right. There's something to be said for just doing things for the fun of it, not because that's going to become your new profession or even your new identity. Yeah, this is going to be my pickleball persona. <laughs> I've got to come up with a pickleball persona. Ooh, I can't wait to see the outfit that you choose for that. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've got to come up with something green, something green. <laughs> Pickle earrings. Yeah. Pickle, yeah. Oh, yeah. this is going to be good. <laughs> Photos to come, people. <laughs> Let's talk to Jessica. So we have Jessica Brody on the program with us today. We are so excited to have you because, Jessica, you are a pretty prolific writer. You've published, is it over 20 or over 25 books? It's like a lot. It's a lot. I <laughs> I lose track because it's over 20. Let's just say okay. that. Okay. okay. So... Prior to being an author, you worked for MGM Studios. So what was it that finally made you decide to sort of take the leap to writing books? Uh, funny question, because they fired me. No, <laughs> I, uh, well, technically, I got laid off. Our entire department got laid off. So I was working for MGM Studios, and I was writing on the side. And I always said to myself, like, oh, it would be so fun to write full time. And I'm like, oh, but I can't do that. You know, like, that's too scary. And And I felt like the universe gave me this giant sign because MGM got bought by Sony and basically our entire, everyone got laid off, I think, apart from a few people. And I got this great severance package. And so it was essentially the universe going, okay, here's your chance. You've got some money now. You've got some time. Like, are you really going to take this opportunity? And so I decided to say yes. And that's when I basically took time off. I refused to get another job doing what I I did at MGM. And I just worked on my novel. And then I ended up selling it about a year and a half later. And I haven't looked back since. (laughs) Wow. 
And your role at MGM might have not even been in storytelling, but did you happen to learn anything about storytelling from your time at MGM Studios? Yeah, great question. Um, It wasn't. I was a financial analyst. So essentially what I did is I ran a bunch of numbers and financials to see if we wanted to acquire certain movies to release on DVD, if you guys remember what DVD is. (laughs) Um, Back then there was, you know, no streaming. So you know, independent movies would come to us and say, hey, we have this movie. Do you want to put it on DVD? And I would help my boss run all the numbers and we would decide if we wanted to put it out. So in a way, I did work with stories in that we would look at the stories that were being pitched to us and the movies that were being pitched to us. We would find comps that we could com- comparable titles that we would run numbers against just to kind of see like, oh, how might this movie perform on DVD? So There is a little overlap, but mostly I was dealing in numbers. That being said, you know, I have an econ economics background. I always thought that economics was less of a study in numbers and more of a study in people and how they make decisions, how they approach life and, and how they weigh pros and cons and things like that. That's essentially, I think, what economics boils down to. And then, you know, how that affects economies and, and all that. So I feel like, my econ degree sort of got me studying people and behavior. And that has, I think, has lent itself a lot to how I build characters. And then the one thing I do use my econ and financial, uh, financial analysis background is I build these like epic spreadsheets to keep track of my word counts and how fast (laughs) I'm going to finish. And they're, they're very, very intricate. (laughs) Well, I want to talk about your latest book. It's a middle grade book called Amelia Gray is Almost Okay. And Carrie and I both loved it. It's very sweet. It, Thank it's, you. A, it's a story about a girl whose dad's job has, has kept them moving around the country every couple of years. But they land in this small town where Amelia tries on some personalities. So where did the idea for this story come from? I have to go back into the archives of my mind because originally this idea, and I love this idea, it's it's so meta because the whole story is about reinventing oneself and this idea got reinvented so many times um, to match. So it started out as a TV show idea. I was working with a TV producer who wanted like a fun kind of Disney-esque, Nickelodeon-esque um, idea to pitch around. And she liked some of my other stuff. So we worked together and I I came up with this idea and I, I can't for the life of me figure out how, but it was this idea of um, at the time she was in high school and that she would try out all these different personalities in this giant high school. And it was sort of a Hannah Montana twist in that she would have three different personalities and she would try to not allow them to overlap or that anybody would know who she was in these other groups. And I was kind of wanting to explore this idea of cliques and groups and how separate they can be in high school. And so we pitched it around. Nobody really was interested. And then I decided I'm going to turn it into a young adult novel. And that one didn't really work either because it felt a little young for young adult. And that makes sense because Disney and Nickelodeon, like, you know, they like to feature older kids who are in high school in their shows, but they skew younger in their audience. So, and young adult and middle grade novels don't work quite that way. Like you kind of want the age of the character to match uh, the age of the reader roughly. So when that didn't work out as a young adult novel, I decided, okay, it seems too young. How about a middle grade novel? What if she's 12? 
So I wrote it that way and I tried to place it in a middle school in my first draft. That didn't work. It was it was just not jiving for me. And so that's when I decided to reinvent it once again and have <laughs> her be in the summer between sixth and seventh grade. And she's sort of being three people in this little town. And, and that's the that's the iteration it is today. <laughs> I love that it that you featured all these little towns. I mean, she talks about some of the different towns that she and her dad have lived in. And one of them that you mentioned is actually a town that was right next to mine. No uh, way. Called, yes, Marietta, Ohio, you mentioned <laughs> in your book. And I lived like 10 minutes from Marietta, Ohio. No. So that was super cool for me. But was there a reason why you set it in, a, in small towns as opposed to a, a larger place where she could maybe be more anonymous? Um. I'm trying to remember where that came from, like chicken or egg. Her dad reinvents hotels. That's his job. And I liked the idea that he came into like small town boutique hotels. And those that was his specialty. And that kind of fed the idea that so they're always in these little small towns. And I think at the time, I just did a bunch of research. And I was just Googling sort of the most charming small towns in America. You know, there's lots of those kinds of lists out there. And I would just pour over these little towns and look for quirky things about each town that maybe I could weave into the backstory. And I I think I just did it just because I thought it might be a more kind of quaint and charming story that that she is in these smaller towns versus maybe getting lost in a big city. Plus, I wanted it to be realistic that she could move around the town on her own, like by foot. I wanted to keep, you know, a small town safe environment. So it wasn't like she was wandering around these giant cities and perhaps getting lost or, right. <laughs> or something like that. Plus, I think like the small town provides some of the tension too. Like, of yes. oh my gosh, maybe she'll be found out. If she was in Chicago... Well, you know, like nobody would ever find out that she, you know, maybe had these three different sort of personas. Absolutely. And that was kind of the problem I had with the middle school. It was like the middle school was too small, mm-hmm. where it was unrealistic that she could be three people in a, in a middle school and not be found out. And then a city's too big. And mm-hmm. so this the small town, and I really played a lot with like, what's the population of this town so that it feels realistic that she could potentially be these three different people travel in these three different circles and they very rarely overlap and of course I say rarely because they do overlap and that's what creates a lot of the conflict in the story is that she's having to hide herself from all the different people who know her as different people well her father asks her to become involved in some activities over the summer and so the personalities that she decides to try on are an athlete a writer and a drama kid <laughs> and one of the things that I I appreciated about your book and uh, her doing all the different personas was that it kind of touches on an issue that I think our kids are sort of overscheduled a lot of times. Mm. Like, and they parents think, you know, that their kid has to be a master of something. Like, mm-hmm. they have to be a you know a future Olympic athlete, or um, you know, if you're ten and you haven't started playing soccer by that time, we'll forget it. You're never going to be a soccer player. Do you mm-hmm. know what I mean? And so yeah. there was a quote in your book where her dad is talking to her and, and he says, maybe someday you will narrow it down to one thing, one passion, or maybe you won't. The world is too obsessed with being the best at something, sacrificing everything to win. We often forget how to just enjoy things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that quote really spoke to me because I do think we put a lot of pressure on our kids to be the absolute best at something instead of enjoying something. 
Yeah, and it's something I feel strongly about. I I wasn't actually pushed into any specific thing as a kid, so this isn't like a a backlash from my own childhood. But I have tried out a lot of things in my life, as evidenced from my backstory of you know I was a financial analyst and then decided now I'm going to be a writer. I I feel like yeah, more and more we're we're pushing kids into these specialties at a young age, maybe because they express interest or maybe because the parents express interest. Either way, I feel like sometimes, and I don't want to speak in super generalities, but I, I feel like sometimes when we when we push ourselves to be really, really good at something, we lose sometimes the passion for it um, because it becomes about just winning or being the best. And I think we see a lot of these people, like we see Olympic athletes on TV and it looks very glamorous and, you know, that they're, oh, they, this is all they've done since they were five years old is, you know, done backflips on the balance beam and look at them now, like they're, they're so happy. And then you watch these documentaries, like, um, I can't remember the name, um, the, the weight of gold, I think was the one I watched where they interview a lot of these Olympic athletes and they're talking about the um, mental health issues they have, the stress the, of that lifestyle. And I think there's a price to that kind of pressure. So especially put on young kids. Um, so I really wanted to explore that in the book and have Amelia represent this theme that she feels like she wants to be the best at something. She wants to master something. It's not her parents putting it on her, it's herself, because she's seeing kids around her who are the best at things. I So I liked this concept of like that she has to learn this lesson on her own, that maybe I don't have to master something. Maybe I can just try a bunch of things and really enjoy myself. So I'm curious, when you were preteen or teenager, did you try on sort of different identities? I know I was a cheerleader. And I mean, like anybody who knows me now is like, what? That's crazy. <laughs> you know? And then when I got into high school, I was on the step team and wearing like the MC hammer baggy pants. And I mean, I went, I went through some things <laughs> when I was that age. So I'm curious, Jessica, if you had similar identity crises, I guess. Yeah. Gosh, I'm trying to remember. I don't think I was really into that many things. I was very studious. You know, I was very good at school and I like to excel at school. And if there was anything I sort of put a lot of pressure on myself about, it was school. Mm. You know, I did choir. I tried out for the play, the school play like three times and never got in. So <laughs> there's that. I tried out for the gymnastics team, didn't get on that. Um, so there was a lot of failed attempts, um, <laughs> you know, and I think I liked a lot of things. I don't think I was very good at a lot of things. Um, like I think I loved dance class, but I wasn't a very good dancer. You know, I look back at like some of these videos of me in um, recitals and I'm like, oh my God, I'm the worst one up there. <laughs> but, you know, I had fun and I really enjoyed yeah. it. It just wasn't obviously a passion I was going to pursue. Yeah. So, and I wasn't really good at sports and I wasn't really an artist. So I felt like the only thing I, w I felt really good at was writing. And I sort of did that as a hobby, never as a, not until later did I realize it could be a profession. Amy, you haven't chimed in. Did, <laughs> what were you? Did you have a beehive hairdo or something? Uh, no, I thought that I was a good dancer and I did try out for my high school's dance team. And I was only one of two people cut 
from the tryouts, which I'm still a little bit mortified to this day because, damn it, I thought I was good. That's that's like me on the gymnastics team. It was like me and my friend. We were the only ones who got cut. And I think we we're the only ones who had ever been cut from the gymnastics team. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. But I do think that, you know, I think I've tried on more different personas as an adult, maybe than I even did as a kid, because I feel like my persona as a mother is different than my persona as a professional person as a, you know, as a podcaster and an interviewer. So I think like in different stages of your life, you sometimes want to reinvent yourself, like you were saying, do you think that your novel has has a message for adults as well? Sure. Why not? I mean, <laughs> we're, yeah. we're all trying to figure it out, right? At age 12, at age 42, we're all, I think, trying to figure out what we want out of life. And I feel like the older I get, the more I realize the value in just doing something for the pure enjoyment of it, or the f- pure joy of it. Not because I want to, you know, like I, I just started playing the ukulele or learning to play the ukulele. And at first, you know, I'm playing with that app, it's called Musician, and it's like a video game and you play the chords as they come by your on your screen. And if you get them wrong, they turn red. And if you get it right, you, they turn green. And at first I was just so obsessed with like getting everything green. And then eventually I was like, you know what, I'm just going to play. Yeah. <laughs> and if it turns red, it turns red, it turns green, it turns green. And it's just such a better experience that way. But I, I do feel like even in the way the app is built, it's like meant to make you want to be perfect. And I I do just think there's a lot of value in just enjoying yourself. Carrie, you you can can try that out for your banjo. I maybe I should. I I bought myself a banjo after I listened to Steve Martin's audiobook. And it you know, (laughs) I kind of toyed around with it for a while, but it's been sitting there lonely behind my desk. So maybe I'll do that this summer. I think they I have do have time. banjo on there. They have really instrument. I think okay. so. And it's called know. musician. It's called that. musician. Musician. Like Y-O-U. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay, mm-hmm. cool. Cool. Well, I want to ask about the fact that Amelia Gray is almost okay is about a father-daughter relationship. It seems like, I mean, there's tons and tons of books about mother-daughter relationship. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious why this story, why you wanted to focus on the father-daughter? Great question. I'm curious too. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it started out the original concept, as I said, lots of different iterations, I think was a mother-daughter relationship. And I feel like maybe I had done that before in other books. Two middle grades ago, a book I wrote called Better You Than Me was very focused on two mother-daughter relationships. And it was a central part of the plot. And so I sort of felt like, oh, I want to try something a little different. And I did really like this idea that it was a little unique. And I I was always really close to my dad growing up. Not that I wasn't close to my mom, but I was definitely more of a daddy's girl. And so I I just, I like that relationship. I like that dynamic. And I thought, what if it's just the two of them? And here's a time in her life when she's really just on the brink of some big changes. And what does that look like in a relationship where they've been so close and so tight for so long? Because it's just been the two of them since she was since she was born. The backstory is that her mother died in childbirth. So yeah, I, I just thought it was an interesting perspective. And maybe that's because I haven't seen it as often. 
Yeah. I, I loved it. I thought it was Thank great. You. So there's a well-known writing book called Save the Cat by Blake Snyder <laughs> that is a popular screenwriting series of books. And you've taken that concept and you've written one for people wanting to write novels. Save the Cat writes a novel that walks budding writers in basic plotting principles. I heard about your book when I was taking a writing class. So um, I want to know what kind of techniques do you tell writers about to write novels? So Save the Cat is a method that I found when I was first trying to get published. I had a I had a novel that was absolutely terrible, probably worse than I was on the dance routines. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I had this passion for writing. I just didn't know how to tell a story, which became evident when I got a lot of rejection letters on my first novel. And a screenwriting friend of mine gave me this book called Save the Cat. And he said, well, it's for screenplays, but I feel like it could work for novels. And I read it and it was like unlocking some secret of the universe. It, it explained story structure in a way that really made sense to me. And I started rewriting my novel at the time. I started rewriting it using this method. That's the first one that got sold. And I owe all of that success to this structure, this method, because it really spoke to me in a language that I understood. And so I've been using this method to plot and outline and write my novels ever since. So it was about 10 years ago that I started teaching the method through Save the Cat. Um, they have classes and things. So I became their sort of novel teacher. And then the, the classes became successful and popular to the point where more and more novelists were using this method. And so I thought the Save the Cat team and I, we got together and we said, let's write a book and have it be out there. And so it's basically everything I've learned over the past 20, whatever, 15 years of writing, plus the Save the Cat method put into this guide. And my hope is that it's out there helping people understand story the way that the original guide did for me. Because writing, I think, is something that can be a gift. Like you can be, you can be born to write. But I don't think story structure is necessarily a gift that a lot of people have. And it's it's kind of a sad disconnect because there's all these really great writers out there, writers that have this passion, but they don't know how to structure a good story. And it's kind of a disservice. So I'm really hoping that this kind of, it's a, like a template, it's a blueprint that helps you understand story and then apply it to your own project. And I really hope that helps that helps people who really want to write. They just don't quite understand how to put together a story. Now, you have a new one coming out that's about how to write a young adult novel. Is that yes. correct? Yes. So what would the difference be between Save the Cat Writes a Novel and Save the Cat Writes a Young Adult Novel? Uh, that's a funny question because the answer is there's really nothing different. But oh, okay. <laughs> um, And I get this question a lot. I'm fully prepared to continue to answer it for the rest of my life. But the idea behind doing the Young Adult Guide was to really hone in on young adult examples and to show how this method works specifically within the young adult space in that we are kind of zeroing in on young adult characters, young adult conflict, young adult world building, so that you can really take the method. It's sort of the same thing like to say, well, actually, it's the same structure in a screenplay versus in a novel. We haven't changed the structure. We've had to adapt it a little bit with page count and with the way narrative form works in novels, but it's the same method. So in in a way, it's, it's, it's like that. We are, we are taking the same method, but now we're 
looking at it through the lens of young adult. And the whole book is filled with young adult examples. And because young adult is so rich with series, there's an entire chapter about how to use the method to write a series. And so after having written uh, 15 young adult novels, I was really excited to kind of show how this method can be honed just for that age group. Well, I want to ask you, she recently said, I saw on your Instagram, as you've gotten older, your characters have gotten younger. (laughs) So talk a little bit about that. Yeah, I started writing when my my first two novels were adult novels, or the characters were adults. Because at that time, I thought, well, I'm an adult, so I should write about adult people. And then I quickly realized that I had a lot of stories in me that were not about adults. They were about teenagers. And I used to joke that I felt much more comfortable writing teenage characters than adult characters because I never really felt like an adult. (laughs) So I started writing Young Adult, and that was super fun, and I wrote tons of them. And then I got this new idea that, you know, a couple books ago, I got this idea that wasn't Young Adult. It was definitely a younger character. The book was called Addie Bell's Shortcut to Growing Up, about a 12-year-old girl who makes a wish on a magic jewelry box to be 16. She just wants to be a teenager. And she wakes up and her life has been fast-forwarded four years, and now she's in high school. So it was an interesting like kind of bridge book because she was in high school, which was a, a landscape I was very familiar with from writing teen fiction, but she was still 12 in her mind. So I got to kind of explore a little bit of a blend And I had so much fun writing that book that I decided to continue to write books about 12-year-old characters. And that kind of bumped me into the the middle grade space. Not that I won't write for adults or young adults again. It's just that's what I've been working on lately. And then the writing for middle grade actually got me introduced to um, some people at Disney Press, where I started to write books based on Disney franchises that basically taking Disney franchise characters and putting them into books. So I wrote a series called um, School of Secrets from the Descendants World. And I was writing that and that's kind of a little bit younger middle grade. And then from there, my Disney editor said, would you like to write some Disney princess Lego books? And I was like, "Um, yeah, of course. (laughs) (laughs) Disney princess is like my favorite thing. So those are even younger. Those are for like I think I think they're rated like six to eight year olds. So I got to write even younger and with pictures and illustrations. And that was really cool as well. So yeah, I feel like I keep getting younger and younger. Pretty soon I'll be writing for for babies in the board books. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Or that. Yeah. (laughs) Well, so, you know, we've talked about your writing life and your books, but, you know, Amelia Gray is a really endearing character. Like you just can't help but like her. So I'm curious who one of your favorite endearing characters are that you've read about at some point over the course of your life. Oh, I have to say Opal Bologna from Because of Winn-Dixie is one of my favorite, at least middle grade characters. Just from the first page, it's like, my name is in Opal India Bologna and I'm 11. And you know, like, I can't remember exactly the words, but just immediately you're just drawn in and you're like, I love you. Um, <laughs> Yeah, so she's magical to me. In the adult space, I really loved Eleanor Oliphant from Eleanor mm-hmm. Oliphant is yeah. completely fine. She really, really spoke to me. And she's not really meant to be like a super likable character, but mm-hmm. there was something about her that just drew me into her narrative. So that's a good kind of spectrum, I guess. <laughs> yeah. 
So summer's right around the corner. And in the past, you have held an annual summer reading challenge. Do you feel like that you do the bulk of your reading in the summer? Is that partly why it's it's the, it, for the three months of summer? I feel like that year I did. Not necessarily, no. I I think that year just that I started it just happened to be a year that I had some extra time in the summer and I was really excited to just read. Honestly, between when I just finished this Save the Cat Rights, a young adult novel comes out in July and I had to read so many books for that because I, I analyze a ton of books for the character development, for the plot, for the examples throughout the book. I must have read like 100 YA novels in three years. Uh, and it was so much. So honestly, it's been very hard for me to read fiction lately. I feel like my brain's just a little burnt out on it. Not that you couldn't read nonfiction for this challenge as well, which you absolutely can. But I think I just like needed some space. So I'm doing more like podcasts and I'm doing more like mindfulness lessons and just listening and and absorbing slightly different types of content. And maybe this summer I'll get back into fiction. I don't I don't know. We'll see. Right now it doesn't feel fun, but it will again. I know. Yeah. I, I know it will. Well, talk to us about book titles. Do you love or hate coming up with book titles? <laughs> Depends on how hard the title is. If it's if it's really easy, then I'm like, this is fun. Title I'll just title books all day. Um no, I re- I actually really don't like titling books. It's very stressful. I'm not that great at it. And I usually require a lot of help. So my thing about book titles is the title either comes right away with the idea. Like at the moment the idea comes, it like the title will pop into my head and it'll be this kind of one-two punch. Or it doesn't come until like the day before the book's going to the printer. <laughs> and the, the publisher's like, we really need a title, Jessica. So with Amelia Gray is almost okay. It was it was the latter. It was that. It was one of those ones that came really late, but it was a fun experience. So what I did for this one was I've learned a lot of strategies for titling books. So anybody out there struggling to title a book, listen up. I also have a blog post on it, but this is a really fun game that I developed over the years and and I used it big time with this book. And that is what I'll do is I'll, I'll go through the book and I'll start pulling out big words, keywords, like things that appear a lot. And you can even upload your book to some apps and websites will have like, you can upload a chapter or uh, some of the text and it will pull out like word clouds for you. And those are kind of words that are used a lot. So I kind of just went through and started pulling out words like summer and reinvention and Amelia, obviously, and just all the kind of words that I thought best represented this book. And I created sort of a bunch of words. And then I put them into like a randomizer. Again, I used Excel spreadsheet. You could (laughs) do whatever you wanted, but you could pull names from a hat if you want or pull words from a hat. But I just started randomly pairing words together. And I would kind of take whatever the pairing was and try to make it work. So like if Amelia and Summer came up in a pairing, I would, you know, put on my list like Amelia's best summer or the summer of Amelia or something like that. I would try to make that work. And I had probably a list of, I don't know, 200 titles from that game. From there, I narrowed it down to my favorites, about uh, 10. And then I sent those 10 out to my editor, to some of my writer friends, and just said, which ones do you like best? And Amelia Gray is Almost Okay was one of the top choices among everyone. And then among those titles, I also would, I also sent out like a short synopsis of the book to some of my friends and said, do you have any ideas? And that's 
a lot of times that helps just to get out of your own head because Mm -hmm. when you write the book, it's very hard for you to see a title. It's why I think publishers also don't really want their authors designing their own covers because it's really hard to see your book that way in like a snapshot. So it's sometimes helpful to to pitch it to someone else and then go, what do you think the title would be? And even if it's not the title you pick, they'll often have ideas that will spawn new things. Wow. That was really intense. This is really nothing like this, but sort of like this. The way my husband and I chose our, our kids' names was it was a ranking system. So we each came up with like five girl names and five boy names. And then we would each rank them and then put them together. And then numerically, whichever one, I can't remember if it was the low, like Ooh, yeah. whichever one had the highest score, that's the one that that's the name that. that we would go with. Did you use yeah. a spreadsheet? I hope you used a spreadsheet. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that we used a spreadsheet besides me just like making one on a piece of paper because I was pretty low tech at that time. <laughs> oh, I would have had a very complicated spreadsheet involved. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, sometimes you have to take your heart out of it. You know, like you want your heart to be in it, obviously, but sometimes you just have to take out the the emotion and just kind of go, okay, what does everybody else think? Or what, you know, how do I make this a little bit more rational? Just because it, it can be very overwhelming to name things, people and dogs and <laughs> titles. Books. <laughs> books, yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. Well, this has been so fun chatting with you about your your books and your system of ranking titles and your (laughs) spreadsheets. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading. We'll be right back. We are back with Jessica Brody, the author of over 20 books with her most recent middle grade book being Amelia Gray is almost okay. We're going to talk about what we're reading. And so Carrie, hit me up. Tell me what you're reading. All right. So I just finished an audio book not too long ago called Magic Lies and Deadly Pies by Misha Pop. The cover is really cute and it's got uh, like a illustrated lady holding a pie. Anyway, it's very cute. It doesn't look like anything I would read. It doesn't have sewers on it. It doesn't have dead bodies on it. You know, it doesn't look like something I would like, but I really liked it. The reason I liked it is because the protagonist, Daisy Ellery, has a special ability. So she makes pies. And when she makes these pies, she is able to put sort of her emotions into the pie. So for example, if she's making pies, she has like a, a food truck and she sets it out on a college campus. And so the pies that she makes for the college students, especially during finals week, are full of calming feelings or feelings that they can succeed. You know, she bakes that into the pies. Well, you know, so she has this pie operation, but she also really hates men who abuse women. And so she also makes murder pies. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) You know, women who come to her because they have been abused, you know, she never takes money for it. She doesn't do this of her own. You know, if she sees somebody who's treating their girlfriend or their wife 
atrociously. She doesn't make the decision. The woman has to come to her. And this is actually a family trait that has been passed down to her. And so the book talks about her mother and her grandmother. Their magic looked a little bit different. But she has always moved around because, you know, if anybody were to get wind of the fact that she's sort of making murder pies, that would not be good. But she finally lands in this town and she sort of falls in love. When I say she falls in love, there is a romantic component to it, but she sort of falls in love with the idea of sort of having a, a home, a home base. You know, it was fun. It was interesting to find out, you know, there's some... There's some suspense in here, like, is she going to get caught? And, uh, you know, there's there's some bad guys and you're going, oh, is, is he a bad guy? Is he a bad guy? You know, so there's some tension there. Anyway, it was a really fun book. And it's actually the first in a series. So this series is called Pies Before Guys. <laughs> and so... There are at least two books in the series. This is the first one, and I recommend it, Magic Lies and Deadly Pies by Misha Pop. Oh, so that's what good. I've been reading. Yeah, it was That's good. hilarious. I love the way you book talked that. That was just perfection. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. Well, Jessica, you, you said that, you know, you're reading life. You were reading tons of books. Do you have a, a favorite of those or a podcast that you've been listening to lately that you'd like to tell us about? Well, yeah, I've actually been reading a lot of young adult books, but I, I think I'll talk about the book that I've finished most recently was Ruth Ware's new book, The It Girl. And I really enjoyed it. I love books that have dual timelines. From a story structure perspective, that's really interesting to me to see how a writer takes two timelines that are that are very different. And in this case, it, it is before someone dies and after someone dies. And it's years later. I think it's like 10 years later after this person has died. And I love this to see how the writer makes both storylines interesting. So in this case, for the It Girl, it's about, uh, and I'm totally forgetting everyone's name, (laughs) from every character's name. Um, But the main (laughs) character, uh, she went to college with the It Girl, who was just very, you know, popular and everybody loved her and but she liked to pull pranks on people which i think is a kind of a part of the setup and then she has died in the present tense she's gone and the person who killed her is in jail and the reason that he's in jail is because the main character testified against him and so in the present timeline you actually start to learn that there could have been a mistake that she could have wrongfully condemned the wrong man and the the man who she condemned has just died in jail, in prison. So now you've got this storyline where you're going back in time to see why did she name this man? And while at the same time, her story in the is unraveling 10 years later, and she's starting to doubt what she saw and what she thinks she saw. And so as she goes back to college to like investigate that night and kind of face up to her fears and face up to her past everything kind of intertwines. And it was really well done. And I will say the twist, which of course I will not give away, but the twist of the whodunit and why and how I thought was pretty good. I'm not a mystery expert in it or anything, but I thought it was it was not something I expected or saw coming or have read before. So when you were reading this, 
because you have have mentioned how much you love spreadsheets. <laughs> when you were reading this, were you thinking about like, man, how many spreadsheets would they maybe have had to have to keep track of like what's <laughs> happening then and what's happening now? Did that ever go through your head? Oh, it always goes through my head. Um, (laughs) And this is why reading for pleasure can be very difficult for me. Um, Not only do I think about what the author is thinking and how they plotted it and what spreadsheets they used, if any, I'm also, you know, trying to figure out the way that they've taken kind of classic story structure and customized it. And it's something I love doing. I love teaching about because I teach story structure, you know, in my book and in my online classes. And then I love saying like, oh, but look at this example. They took the classic structure, but they, you know, twisted it this way or they they customized it this way. And dual timeline is always one that has like a fun twist. Uh, so yeah, I'm always thinking those things. Very cool. Well, Amy... I actually, I have no idea what you're going to talk about. Sometimes I I know, know. but this week it's a big secret. I know. And when I say it, you're going to be like, what? Anyway, Mm. I I read a book called Big Tree by Brian Selznick. Now this is a middle grade book that is in the style of Brian Selznick. And many readers will recognize his name from his Caldecott medalist winner called The Invention of Hugo Cabret. I haven't read any of his other books, but I think they're all sort of in the same style where there's a combination of art and prose. And it's not quite a graphic novel because there's too many words and, you know, there's chapters, but the artwork is such an essential part of the story. And you need to see the pictures in order to read the clues of the story. So there'll be like, you know, four or five pages worth of artwork, and then there'll be four or five pages of prose. So um, it's it's an interesting combination. His illustrations are done in like black and gray pencil drawings. But in this book, it was released several weeks ago. Selznick tells a story about two little sycamore seeds, Merwin and Louise, who try to survive the extinction of all the species during the time of the dinosaurs in the Cretaceous period. So they start out as a seed pod with hundreds of other little seedlings and they are set loose from the mother sycamore after she is knocked over by a, and I'm putting this in air quotes, giant because that's the way they refer to it. But basically it's a dinosaur that's fleeing from this great fire. So Merwin and Louise are then set on this adventure to find a place to make roots, a place with water, sun, and soil. And so on their journey, they encounter many Quirky characters, including a seaweed king, fungus, which they call ambassadors because fungus connect all the trees and they transfer information from these little filaments underneath the ground. And there's a moth named Spot who carries them on its back. They meet these little creatures called Forma Fumera, who they call themselves scientists because human scientists can use their shells to collect information about the environment. And they encounter dinosaurs and volcanoes and even the earth itself, who they call the old one. So Selznick's prose combined with the illustrations makes this book feel a little bit magical. And in fact, the story was inspired by a project that Steven Spielberg had asked Selznick to work on um, as an animated movie. But with COVID, the project stalled. But Selznick had fallen in love with the story, and after getting Spielberg's permission, he decided to turn it into this book instead. So I read an ebook version of this, but for those who want to listen to this, Meryl Streep narrates it, and there is an original music score for it as well. I am curious how that would work, because to me, the illustrations are just so central to this book, 
But again, how can you not love Meryl Streep? So maybe I will try the audiobook at some point and just see how that all works out. Um, but at the end of the book, Selznick gives scientific explanations about each of the characters that Merwin and Louise meet. And all of it is based in science. So this is a great book for kids interested in ecology and climate and in science and for, you know, adults like me. So again, the name of that book was Big Tree by Brian Selznick. Okay, so because you, I'm I'm looking this up, I'm trying to find, oh, there it is, Big Tree. Because you were reading this on an e-reader, right? Uh Uh-huh. Because like I've read, I read Hugo Cabret and I read Wonderstruck and they are like big honking books. (laughs) So did you get, I read it, I read it in 24 hours. Okay. Well, it's 528 pages. <laughs> so it, I think that's good. I think that's good to know, like how quickly you read it. I love his books, but man, like you got to go to the gym for a couple weeks before you get them in print because they are so thick. And well, heavy. I was, I was a little concerned about that, but when you get it on an ebook, you really don't know how long it is. Yeah. And yeah. it went by pretty quick. Cool. Well, I guess since the pictures are in black and white, if you have a black and white e-reader right then you're fine right okay cool yep all right well let's take another quick break and when we come back jessica's gonna answer her three in the third degree or whatever we're calling it since we never did come up with a new name for it okay <laughs> <laughs> sounds like you well, need a, a spreadsheet yeah. <laughs> we need we need we need that title creator yeah no. Oh, I know. And then we need to send it to some of our friends and go, okay, which one of these? (laughs) We are back with Jessica Brody and we are ready to put her on the hot seat. So number one, you double majored in economics and French and you minored in Japanese what did you envision yourself doing with these majors? <laughs> well, whatever my answer, please don't ask me to speak Japanese. Um, <laughs> the one thing that I can remember how to say, which is taksan wasuremashita, which means I forgot everything. So that's <laughs> very helpful um, when people see that. I wanted to do international business, basically. And I've always loved the French language. I've always loved France. And so I kind of pictured myself maybe traveling to France or or working for a French company or something like that where I'd get to use my my French. You know, you switch gears like you're not doing business, but have you at least been able to travel to France and use your French? Yeah, actually a really cool experience happened twice. Uh, I was invited to do a book tour in France for two different books when two of my books were translated into French. Uh, because I spoke the language and they didn't need a translator or anything like that, I was able to go over there and actually just do all of my press and interviews and stuff in French. And that was like a once in a lifetime experience. I got to go to the Geneva book fair and do interviews there. And it was so, so fun. So I guess, I guess my studies paid off a little bit. (laughs) Absolutely. That is fantastic. All right. So we we were just talking about languages. We're going to talk about the English language because there are some words that you just don't like. Okay. So besides pocketbook and panties, I don't like panties either. What are some other words that you think should be struck from the language? 
I don't know. Just those two. I don't just know. Um, See, oh, what well, here, let me, I, I might have to usurp your second question here. Cause okay. How do you feel about the word moist? I don't mind moist people. Okay. You know, I know that is, that is a trigger word. A lot of people do not like that word. Okay. I, it doesn't bother me, especially when talking about cake. Um, okay. but I'll give but, you that. Yeah. But pocketbook. Okay. I probably should explain. I, I feel like it's kind of an East coast word and not that I have anything against people from the East coast. I was raised on the West coast. So the first time I heard it as a kid, I was so confused because <laughs> I was like, well, it doesn't go in your pocket. It's not a book. Why, why are you calling it a pocketbook? And I think it just kind of stuck with me as like, I don't like that word. It doesn't make any <laughs> sense. <laughs> And panties are just, I don't like that word either. It's just an ew. Yeah, I don't like that. I don't have a problem with panties. I don't like underpants. I don't like the word underpants. I feel like we should just say knickers like the Brits do. I just think that's a great word. It's a great word. And it applies to men or women, you know? Right? Yeah. Yeah. See, a friend and I, all through college, we, we kept a list. No spreadsheet, but it was a oh, list. Oh, I'm curious. And, yeah. And we listed all the food words. Mostly they were related to meats, but all the food words that were disgusting, like loaf. Ooh. I don't want to eat any, I mean, ugh, loaf. <laughs> yeah. A bread loaf, fine, but a meat loaf, yuck. Mm. And then like even nuggets. Oh yeah. That's not, you yeah. know, yeah. Yeah. Ugh. anyway, so I can't remember every, oh, loin. I don't like the word slacks. Now, I think they actually Uh, took that word out of the dictionary, but you know, the word that you would use for pants, although I think, I don't know, I guess. What about trousers? I'm not a big fan of that word either. Yeah. I like trousers better than slacks. I don't know. Yeah, you know, I'm words are just weird. Words can be very weird. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, we sort of all contributed on that one. We did. Okay. <laughs> so, last question. You and I both live in a three dog household, mm. and having three dogs is a lot different than just two. So, what are some pros and cons about having three dogs? Well, um, they keep each other company, I guess. But the con to that is they set each other off. So one <laughs> starts barking, then the next one starts barking, and then the next one. And I think I have one dog. So I have a golden retriever, a great Pyrenees, and then a tiny little chihuahua, who's oh. obvi- obviously the boss. But the chihuahua is like the most trigger happy. So like any of the other two start barking, and she doesn't even know what she's barking at, but she's happy to bark. And the the golden retriever is the most strategic one. So the golden retriever will like get the other two barking in order to accomplish something. So like steal (laughs) a bone or just get some cuddle time with us, like, you know, kind of like get the other two out of the picture and then I can do whatever I want. So she'll bark like twice and then the other two will just be off on there in a frenzy. And she's like, okay, what can I do now? The the youngest of my dogs, I she's such a follower and she's picked up all these bad habits from the other two mm. that she didn't do before. That's a con of having three. And I have trouble walking all three by myself. Yeah, we don't we don't do that. <laughs> Our dogs are like one dog at a time walkers because the well, particularly the golden retriever and the great Pyrenees. The great Pyrenees is very chill. The golden retriever has to be in front. And she's just a better walker when she's on her own. I feel like she sort of wishes she was a a, a single dog <laughs> and she has to deal with her sisters. Well, Jessica, thanks so much for spending time chatting with us. It has been so fun 
you know, getting to know you and hearing about your background and about Amelia Gray is almost okay. Thanks so much. Well, the pleasure has been mine. You two are fabulous. And thank you for letting me play all your games and, uh, (laughs) and share my, share my books with you. You can find Jessica at her website, jessicabrody.com and on her Instagram at Jessica Brody. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at perksofbeingabooklover.com. We're also on Instagram at perksofbeingabooklover.pod and on Facebook at perksofbeingabooklover. We know that there are so many podcast choices out there, so we are thankful that you have chosen ours to listen to this week. But we would like for you to tell people about it. So if you like what we're doing with the show, tell a friend. Word of mouth is one of the best ways to help people find us. Or we also love reviews. Leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Finally, a huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there, live or in archives at forwardradio.org.